So, <clears throat> Jeremiah chapter 6 uh, is going to tell us about this impending destruction that is coming uh, down from the north. And in verse 1, it says, Oh, you children of Benjamin, gather yourself to flee from the midst of Jerusalem. Blow the trumpet in Tekoa and set up a signal fire in Beth Heserim, for disaster appears out of the north and great destruction. Uh, God sometimes called uh, Benjamin and Judah, the two tribes of the south, uh, Benjamin. Um, Jerusalem was also in the territory of the tribe of Benjamin. So when you had that whole rebellion against the house of David and Solomon is trying to pass the kingdom off according to David's lineage, the northern tribes rebel and declare that they have nothing to do with uh, Judah in the south. And it's Benjamin and Judah that become known as Judah in the south. So here the Lord is simply referring to that entire region and those two tribes as Benjamin and uh, telling them that they need to prepare for uh, what is about to come to them. This signal fire that is mentioned in the last part of verse 1 is a common method that uh, was military practice for them to uh, signal that trouble was coming or invasion was coming. It would call to attention uh, the men of the next region. So they would usually have some very high point where they had a signal fire and all of its materials ready and they would just ignite it. And, you know, if, if someone looked across the valley and saw on the peak that the signal fire was burning, everyone would move to action in preparation militarily for whatever might be coming. So the Lord is, you know, saying that this whole invasion that's coming down out of the north, the entire south needs to ready itself for. And in particular, that statement, flee from the midst of Jerusalem. And those were the only ones that survived. And Jeremiah is a very unpopular prophet uh, as he declares um, all of these things to the people. They have a real hatred for him and a real rebellion against his message. And uh, so, you know, for him to be telling them, flee Jerusalem to them was cowardice. It sounded like treason like somehow this was a failure on the prophet's part rather than, you know, a success. Uh, many people thought that way about the teachings of Jesus when he told his followers, you see these things unfolding, don't even go back into the house for your spare coat. You need to just flee into the wilderness. And it was only the followers of Jesus Christ that survived the ransacking of uh, Israel and in particular Jerusalem in 70 AD. They saw the mounting uh, oppression and the siege that was coming and said, hey, Jesus told us when we saw these things, 
it was time for us to leave town. And they fled uh, south, uh, eastward across the Jordan, and no Christian uh, perished in the invasion that took place in 70 AD because they heeded the voice of Jesus. So, you know, here, Jeremiah is saying a similar thing. And the people look at that, like I said, as treason, like there's a failure in the voice of the prophet. And he is the only one who is hearing accurately from the Lord about how they should react to these circumstances. Now, in verse 2, he says, I have likened the daughter of Zion to a lovely and delicate woman. Now, it has a degree of compliment to it, but when what you need is men of war, you don't want lovely and delicate women. And, and that is really what the prophet is saying here. You know, what am I going to like in this group too? Oh, like a group of beautiful, lovely, delicate women. That's what they are. You know, the men that should be of fighting stature are like a bunch of girls is what he's saying. There's lots of application in uh, the world today, in the church today, and the the way people are just giving up and oh, trying to appease every you know delicate sense of what needs to occur. The world needs a swift kick right in the rear end. I mean, this the church is pathetic in its approach. Its its whole demeanor is soft, and uh, you know wants its desires met. Wants you know n- no insult against uh, the ladies in any way, but I think we all understand the contrast that when when you need not not just a hard guy, somebody who's gruff. When you need somebody who has fighting skills, there's a, there's an army on its way to destroy and they need they need men of military mindset in their worship services in their homes in their culture who are calling people to attention it's a it's a terrible thing when a civilization loses its strength and becomes soft and delicate and beautiful you know, there, there's a certain segment that always wants to move us that direction. And in my opinion, what I recognize is very often they are our enemies in our midst. They're the ones that are encouraging people towards weakness, encouraging people towards compromise. You know, what's at the center of all of that? Self. You know, my desires, my, you know, it's amazing, you know, when you talk to people about entering the ministry and working within the ministry and, you know, they, a a lot of them sound like all of those people who came to Jesus saying, I definitely want to follow you. But the first thing I need to do is bury my father. And, you know, the list is long, isn't it? You know, I need to, I'm getting married. I've I've just enrolled in school. I I've just bought an ox. I've got to go try out. Excuse, excuse, excuse. 
I mean, are we paying attention to the hour? You know, have we have we looked around us and seen what's going on? You know, we just what passed the forty seventh anniversary of Roe versus Wade. Sixty five million children aborted in the U.S. Horrible, horrible milestone for us to be passing, and it's time for men of strength and men of stature to rise up and to fight uh, for what the Lord has given us. I've likened the daughter of Zion to a lovely and delicate woman. Verse 3 says, The shepherds with their flocks shall come to her. They shall pitch their tents against her all around. Each one shall pasture in his own place. You know, pitching the tents against her. This is uh, the siege army that is coming. These are the forerunners that will show up and just lay a barrier around particularly the city of Jerusalem so that eventually, you know, like the shepherds, they can shear the sheep and perform the slaughter. You know, once a year they would harvest the wool and, you know, kill some of the flock in order to take the meat and, uh, you know, make themselves wealthy and make themselves uh, healthy in the process. And that's what the Lord is saying through Jeremiah is there's there's a coming harvest. You're going to be herded together like sheep. You're going to have everything stripped from you like a sheep is, you know, that big old bulky you know, lamb or ram that comes in and man, you shear them down and they go away all you know, skinny and pink and, you know, looking like they've exactly that been stripped right down. And and that is what lies ahead for them. You're just going to be harvested from is what the Lord is saying. Verse four here, it, it says it more plainly, prepare a war against her, arise and let us Go up at noon. Woe to us for the day goes away and the shadows of evening are lengthening. The idea of the time has passed. It, you know, you're close to the finishing hour. You know, the day is finished. Oh, you know, you thought you had more time. You know, you started out, you heard the prophet's warning and you saw the northern tribes fall and get taken away into captivity by Assyria so you convinced yourself there was more time and the deterioration continued and the corruption crept in and everyone's falling to their own will and their own way. But you still got time and you've still got and there's still we haven't been judged and we haven't been conquered and they've still got time. And the Lord is saying, your time's up. We're, we're at the night watch. The darkness is about to fall. It's all over for you. Yeah, if if this is the moment you wake up, you know, if you're one of these people and you suddenly realize what hour it is about the invasion that's coming, what was his command at the beginning? It's time to run away. It's not time to fortify yourself. It's not. It's time to run away because the great destruction is coming. The, the lengthening of the shadows. Time is running out. Time has run out. Verse 5. Arise, let us go by night and let us destroy her palaces. So now the Lord begins to speak uh, from 
the position of the one who's going to attack them. And you're going to hear that a few times as the prophet talks about how he is the one who has orchestrated these circumstances, the Lord. So the Lord is speaking. That's significant and important because within especially those, they're all corrupt. They're all sinful. They're all fallen away from the Lord. But there are many of them that still participate in all the acts of worship. So the confusion that comes in, because well, I go to church, you know, I've never denied Jesus, but I live completely according to the world. You know, people say that, well, not all the time. Yeah, but when you do, you live it completely according to the world. You know, the times where you do fall to the flesh, you do it completely. You know, you don't hold back. You go down that road. There's a purity that we're called to. There's a purity that believers are supposed to walk in the Lord. And so that's why he's saying, no, this is my judgment. This isn't just that wicked old Assyria, terrible old Babylon is finally rising up and they're going to come down here in their viciousness and attack you. It's a matter of the Lord saying, no, you're mine and you are going back and forth from the temple of worship out into your, uh, you know, fornicating and your sin and your drunkenness. You, you go back and forth between these things. So I'm the one that's orchestrating the attack. I'm bringing it to you. I'm the one who's going to pronounce the judgment and destroy your palaces. For thus has the Lord of hosts said, verse 6, Cut down trees and build a mound against Jerusalem. So like a commander of an army that would say to his soldiers, to his troops, go right over there in that forest and cut those trees down. Bring them over here. Build the siege mound. Let's, let's get the catapult constructed right here. The Lord is commanding. Thus has the Lord of hosts said, I'm going to bring this destruction to you. I'm going to pronounce this judgment upon you. Cut down the trees, build a mound against her. This is the city to be punished. You know, the way it's written, it is just like the commander of an army who is saying, no, not, we're not moving on. Tell everybody to stop right here. This, this is the city we're going to invade. These are the trees we're going to cut down. This is where this, right here. This is where I want this. Not over there. I want the siege mound built right here. It says the Lord is now the one who's in command of this Babylonian army who's come up against Jerusalem. That's going to be a frightening thing. When you, when you think about the way that the people of Israel and Jerusalem are listening to this, this is why they're so offended with Jeremiah. You know, their prophets are supposed to come in their mind and say things to them, even, even if it's a rebuke. It's supposed to be a thing that, like, steers them back on course gently comes along and says, hey, let's stop going that direction. Let's go over here and follow the Lord in this way. He's going to talk about how the Lord has already said those things and they've rejected it. So now the voice that Jeremiah is giving is as though the Lord, you know, imagine it, you turn around and there's the Lord. You can visibly see him and he's got on the uniform of the enemy and he's the one ordering the troops around and the soldiers around and the army around and setting up the siege mounds and getting ready to do war against his own people. This is why they're so offended with Jeremiah. They can't believe that a prophet of God would come and speak to them this way. 
Here, you're making it sound like God is our enemy. And essentially what Jeremiah says throughout the whole process is, no, God's not your enemy. You're going to see it, right? God is pleading with them for their repentance still, even in these moments. What he's saying is, you've made yourself an enemy of God. You're the ones that have changed uniform, <laughs> you know. You're looking over at the Lord and acting like he's, in, look at him. He's, come, he's the commander of that army that's come down here against us. And Jeremiah is saying, no, no, you're the ones that are in the wrong uniform. You're the ones that have chosen the wrong side. You're the ones that have gone the way of rebellion. And he gets very specific about that. Cut down the trees. Build a mound against Jerusalem. This is the city to be punished. She is full of oppression in her midst. She's full of oppression. Jerusalem is supposed to be full of mercy. Jerusalem is supposed to be full of grace. For all of Israel, the center of worship, the crown jewel where the temple stands is supposed to be a place of grace, forgiveness, love. And what it's become is a place of oppression where people are attacking and tearing and harming and hurting one another. How, how can this be? These are, these are supposed to be my people. They're supposed to be reflective of my character, is what he's saying. You know, we hear that early on with Moses when the Lord says, I am holy, therefore you should be holy. We're children of God. So our behavior should be reflective of our heavenly father. And here the prophet is saying, nope, it's full of oppression. The reason it's full of oppression, they don't love God. They don't have a fear of the Lord, and they don't love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, and mind. Therefore, they do not love their neighbors as themselves. The reason that it has become a place that is full of oppression is because their hearts have departed from worshiping the Lord. It's a sad day. It's a sad rebuke. Look at verse 7. As a fountain wells up with water, so she wells up with her wickedness. Violence and plundering are heard in her. Before me continually are grief and wounds. This should not be the sound of Jerusalem. It should be the sound of joy, the sound of song, the sound of worship, the sound of sacrifice, obedience. That should be what's heard there. Instead, it's like pouring over like a well. It's just the water gushing out. And what is that water? What's flowing out? Wickedness. You know, you need wickedness. You don't have enough of it. Go into Jerusalem. You can find it in droves. You can get it by the bucketful there. Wickedness is just pouring out of that place. What a strange picture. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's uh, so many parallels you could draw, right? You're supposed to go see the doctor for health, and instead, what are they doing? Handing out death. And that would be a strange thing, right? You know, roll up, supposed to see the red cross symbolically there, and somebody's changing out, skull and crossbones. Wait a minute, am I in the right place? No, this is supposed to be a place of health. You know, everybody's in black. Nothing's clean. Wait, what is going on? You know, just corpses and coffins everywhere. This is supposed to be a place of healing. 
you know, things that don't belong in this place. How in the world could it be that Jerusalem has become a well, a spring, where wickedness boils up and pours out? That makes no sense. You know, I immediately thought of the New Testament contrast. And John chapter 7, Jesus is at the feast on the last day, verse 37 that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those dwelling in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, Jesus, because Jesus was not yet glorified. The Holy Spirit pouring out of us. You know, we should be able to be identified by our relationship with the Lord. You know, Matthew chapter 7, you know, often everyone that's living in sin wants to quote the beginning of the chapter. Judge not, lest you be judged. The measure by which you measure it out will be measured back to you. You drop right down in John uh, or I said John, Matthew chapter 7, and there at verse 15, he tells us, you'll know the false prophets by their fruit. You're going to be able to identify who they are by their behavior, by the things they say, by the things they do. So many people you know, that live contrary to the word of God want to reach back and claim Jesus for themselves. I'm a Christian. I'm a believer. You know that I don't believe in anything else. I've never denied Jesus, but I, like I said, I, you know, they live completely contradic contradictory to it. They're not actually in submission. So, so the well of wickedness that comes up out of Jerusalem, as much as we can look at it, and think that's totally wrong. That's contradictory. That should not be that way. So it is with a Christian, right? How many passages, uh, you know, could we? draw in parallel from the New Testament about Paul saying, you know, this should not be so. You need to depart from the world. You know, James saying you can't get fresh water and salt water out of the same spring. There's, there's no way around. I literally had a guy argue with me about that. I, I you know, He's some water specialist guy. Oh, no, I've been to places, uh, you know, I know of where, you know, there are places where fresh water comes out right in the same place that salt water, uh, you know, comes out. Okay. So doesn't the salt water corrupt the fresh water so that it's all salt water? And he was like, taken back, like, oh, yeah. It doesn't work. You can't, you can't say that. You can't say in Wom, ah, I go to church, I worship the Lord, I raise my hands, and yet I live in filth and sin also. It, it, it isn't our lives. We can't, we can't function that way. This place should not have a well of wickedness pouring out of it. The Holy Spirit, truth in our mouths, truth in our conduct, the word of God governing our lives. Consistency needs to be what's going on. Our following of the Lord, the Holy Spirit, right? I, I was going through all of these illustrations many years ago. We had just started this church, and this older woman came up to me afterwards, and she referred. You were you were saying that about the, the well and the salt water, all that stuff. And she said, "My mother always used to say, you never know what's in a sponge until you squeeze it.'" 
talking about the cleaning rag or the sponge on the back of the sink. Looks good till you pick it up, give it a squeeze, and all that, you know, orange grease comes up between your fingers. You just, now you know what's in it. It's not clean. You know, people act like, I'm fine. You know, really? Are we? Or is there filth in our heart? You know, look at the behavior. It can't be that there's a welling up of this deceit and lies and oppression and wickedness in the life of the believer. Look at verse 8. Be instructed, O Jerusalem. Here's the mercy of the Lord. Be instructed, lest my soul depart from you, lest I make you desolate, a land not inhabited. He's still pleading with them. They're on the threshold of judgment, and God is saying, come on. There's got to be a way we can work this out. Just stop. Just turn around, right? We hear the prophet, you know, Isaiah saying, you know, come, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet. I'll, I'll cleanse you. I'll make you white as wool. So even though the Lord is pronouncing such harsh direction upon them, he's saying, just listen to what I'm saying. Take my instruction. You guys have heard me many times talk about the wise son actually desires to be corrected, wants to be corrected. It, you know, it's it's usually in our flesh we don't like it. Somebody comes along and says, "Hey, what are you doing right there?" And we bristle up in our sin and try to give whatever explanation we can for our wrong behavior. The wise son hears the voice of the Lord and says, "I needed this correction. I needed to be turned." They needed somebody to intervene. That's exactly where the Lord is at with these circumstances. He, he's pleading with them even as their destruction is about to go. I don't want to turn you into an uninhabited land. I don't want to leave you desolate. I don't want to destroy you so that there's nothing left. I, I want you to prosper. I want you to have the good things. You know, so very often people will express that. It's just Always struggle, always failure, always falling apart in my life. Are we doing the things that invite that into our lives? You need to examine that, right? The Lord's ear is not deaf. His arm is not short, that he cannot hear, that he cannot help. But our sin has separated us from the Lord. You know, the things that hold back his blessing, that hold back, are very often our own sinfulness. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they shall thoroughly glean as a vine the remnant of Israel as a grape gatherer. Put your hand back into the branches. So the Levitical law of gleaning, right? They could go through the vineyard. They could go through the field and cut down the wheat or the grain and bind it into sheaves and they could harvest it out. The Lord specifically gave them command. If grapes were not ripe, they were to be left on the vine. When you begin the harvest, if you get to small clusters and they're not ready, do not take those off with the ones that are ready, you leave those behind for the poor. 
You do not harvest right into every little corner of your field where you're going out and, you know, just you can tell just a few thin seeds sort of bounced along and landed out further and you got little thin patches around the edge and you're out there cutting down one, two, five, ten pieces and just getting all the scragglers in order. No, leave the corners of your fields. Leave the edges for the poor so they can come into the field. So, you know, most of us are very familiar with the story, you know, of Ruth and Boaz, you know, widow and, and told, you know, living with a widow and told by the master of the field, Boaz, go out and glean what you want. And he instructed his uh, workers to leave behind, to, to don't, don't use the same care you normally would. You leave in abundance for her so she can go back in and harvest. The north is gone. You're looking at the, the southern two tribes at this point, some stragglers in the northern part that is Israel. And the Lord is saying, no, you guys were the corner of the field. You guys, you guys were the unripe grapes that were left on the vine. And now you're going to have Babylon come in and they're going to glean you out. They're, they're going to carve out everything. There's not going to be, you're the remnant, and we're now polishing it off. Right? People talk about that. Oh, I think they finally reached rock bottom. Is there rock bottom? I mean, I'm not trying to be smug. Right? Some of us, you know, we're miners. We find the rock at the bottom and get out the drilling rig and the blasting caps and see how much further we can go down. You know what I'm saying? I mean, just... There must be treasure down here. And we just keep boring and digging and blasting. Rock bottom? I mean, I have I have been the person and I have watched people where everybody else is around going, oh my gosh, look what they've done to themselves. Surely now they'll repent. Surely now they'll turn around. It's astonishing to not watch them to go even further, to make it even worse. Uh, I, I just, so many people have expressed things to me that I can't even repeat. I mean that. You know, they've told me about things that were so horrible, so vulgar. I'll give you a, a comedic uh, sort of explanation. Uh, many years ago, I was dealing with a couple of guys I knew, just hardcore drug addicts, and uh, <clears throat> their supply had dried up you know the town was you know they were busting the dealers and it was getting really hard to get anything for them and they were they were hating it they were just beside themselves and i i show up where they were both of them one day and uh i don't say anything at first but they've both one of them has this red ring on his forehead and the other one has two red rings on his forehead just slightly apart from one another and, I mean, it's blatant, very, very plain, huge raised welts. Um, and, uh, you know, you don't want to just immediately say, well, like, what's up with... But, I mean, you know, after a while, I can't bear it anymore. Like, like what is up with this? So I finally say, like, okay, what's up with the injuries, you know, on your foreheads? And they both shank, you know, hanging their heads all in shame. And then this great explanation begins of how, 
you know, man, we've been trying to get high and there's nothing around. And we, you know, went over to so-and-so's house and we thought maybe and nothing. And so, you know, we came back here and, you know, so, um, you know, I, I was the first one to put the, the metal vacuum cleaner hose on my head while he smacked the other end of it with a rubber mallet, you know, for the big head rush that happened. And, uh, so then I did it to him twice. No way to get high and in desperation to have a feeling of, you know, that head trip high, you know, rush. They're literally injuring themselves. Oh, that, that's one I can describe to you as embarrassing and as shameful as that is. Right. I mean, as stupid as it is for me to even use that. I've heard much worse than that. People telling me things they've done and ways that they've, you know, created and circumstances they've involved themselves in to pursue their sin. Rock bottom? That's probably right in the center of hell, isn't it? Literally, right? Because some people will not stop until their life is taken from them. Here are these people right here. And that's exactly what the Lord is saying is, let me reason with you because you're the gleaning. You're the last of it. The harvesters that are coming in here are bringing death with them. That's a horrible way of thinking this. You've got to understand the urgency of the Lord in verse 8. Amen. As he's pleading with them. Be instructed. Let me teach you. Let, let me guide you. Let me show you. And instead, they're going to march headfirst into this. Verse 10. To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Indeed, their ear is uncircumcised. It's, it's like pl filled up, plugged up with flesh. It's like grown over with flesh that they cannot hear. Their ear is uncircumcised. They cannot give heed. Behold, the word of the Lord is a reproach to them. They have no delight in it. You think about the direction the church is going right now. The world, we know this, right? You mention the Bible and the eyes roll and, you know, the sharp remarks come and the arguments begin. And people are getting real smug. They, you know, they talk down. They, there's a hatred. A disdain for God's word. In the church, there's a disdain for God's word. Is that really what God meant? When I mean, are you trying to tell me that? I mean, that's so antiquated. You know, even within the segments that we would think were healthy, they, they discover that you're teaching the word of God verse by verse, and you can see their lip curl, and they have this attitude like, oh, that's boring. There's, you know, I, I think I've shared with you before years ago, I was with a, a fellow pastor and he, he had a tear in his eye. He had a quiver in his voice as he begged a group of us pastors, do, do any of you guys know a, of a good book? And I, I'm literally like, 
like the good book? Like what, like what are you asking? And he's like, I've just run out of things to teach our congregation. I, I need a book that I could study and teach to them. And all the other pastors are like, hmm, let me see. Um, have you read? Have you read? Have you read this? Have you read that? And when he finally looked at me and said, do you, I said, have you ever taught the book of Ezra? Few pastors have. The Bible's full of knowledge and wisdom. It never stops. What do you What do you mean? And he literally was offended that I would suggest it. And I then I dwelt on, okay, you know what? Let's talk about Ezra and the importance. And and I just went off on why Why are you not doing this? Why won't you take my suggestion? You're going to have something that's written by some author that's very popular that when your congregation tells somebody else from another congregation, you, hey, we just studied such and such a book at our church. Everybody's going to go, oh, we read that too. How about you blow people's minds with, uh, we've studied our way through the whole Bible this year. How about that? There's a disdain for the word of God. You know, there's a big push now in Calvary Chapel of, oh, yeah, verse by verse. That's how Calvary Chapel did it in the beginning, but we, we've gotten rid of that. We don't do that anymore. And then you look inside the churches, and there is so much chaos going on. The word of God, there's a hatred for it. They, they disdain it. They do not want it. To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? And indeed, their ear is uncircumcised. They cannot give heed. Behold, the word of the Lord is a reproach to them. They have no delight in it. Do you delight in the word of God? If you do not, slap yourself right in the head. You need to. I need you to. Your family needs you to. Your brothers, your sisters. Your children, the world at large needs you to take great delight in the Lord. No, right? Psalm chapter one, you know it. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. But verse two says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. Are you actively memorizing God's word? Pouring over the scripture and, and just drilling those six words into your head over and over again until you don't have to look at that note card one more time. There are those six words. And then you begin the next six or eight word cluster and you memorize and you commit it to your heart, right? Your word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. They disdain it. They, they take no delight. It's by, I used to like it, but now it's like every morning when I open it up, it's just so dull. That's not the word's problem. That's my problem when it gets to that level. There's something wrong with me at that point. right? All we have to eat is this wretched manna every day. <laughs> 40 years. Or you could eat sand. You're in the desert, you moron. I mean, look around. Right? You know, the Lord is raining food down upon you. His word is new every day. His mercy is new every morning. 
If you're sitting here right now and that's stabbing you in the heart, don't don't be convicted. Go back to verse in six, uh, eight and recognize the Lord saying to you, be instructed. He's pleading with us. The heart needs to change. Beg him to change your heart's appetite. The man who is blessed, the man who prospers, the man who is rooted and grounded is the man who takes delight in God's word. You want to be that person. Verse 11. Therefore, I am full of the fury of the Lord. I am weary of holding it in. The prophet Jeremiah is full of fury. There, there is statements made a little later in this chapter where everybody wants soft, kind words. Why are you going to be so harsh, Jeremiah? Why, why are you going to be so fiery? Because nobody's listening and destruction is on the way. Destruction isn't on the way just for those that are of the world. It's on the way for those that the Lord himself is going to separate from sheep and goats, right? Because those goats say, hey, 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 we cast out demons in your name. I say again, only those who claim to be Christians have ever cast out demons in Jesus' name. And Jesus says, depart from me. I never knew you. You want to have a relationship with the Lord where you know the Lord and you know he knows you. You know it. You can have that. John tells us that. You can know that you have eternal life. You don't have to wonder. You don't have to sit around and go, I hope I am. I'm doing all the stuff I think I should be. You can literally live in such a way that you know with a certainty, I know the Lord and he knows me. A full assurance. I, Chuck Smith was the first one I heard say it and it has just stuck in my mind so well. Why would you want to live your life under a question mark when you could live it underneath an exclamation point? Saved or saved? What do you want? How do you want to live? You want to live it under the question mark? Now, this is why Jeremiah is full of fury. Because the complacency of the people has led to the place where they're going to experience God's wrath and his destruction. What, what a horrible thing for a minister of God's word to be thinking about and knowing about his congregation. Looking out and recognizing in the behavior of the people. These people are living under at least the strongest, maybe not the assurance of God's punishment, but at least the strongest of possibilities of God's punishment. That, that'll light you on fire. You know who Penn and Teller are? The magicians? Short kind of guy with uh, light curly hair, balding, a bigger, tall guy, dark hair, ponytail. No? Well, Penn is a, an avowed atheist, right? D despises all that is Christianity. But he has said that he does have respect 
for the hellfire and brimstone preacher because he recognizes that man believes what he's saying. He has no respect for the man who's soft and amiable and peaceable, does not have a fire in his belly to share God's word. He, he said, I got no respect for that guy. Because if you are convinced that people are going to hell, then you should have a fire to bring people into your kingdom. And if you're just walking around limp-wristed, I don't want anything to do with you. That's pretty interesting for an atheist to say. Truthful. Truthful. Look at what surrounds us. Look, look at what surrounds us, which claims to be Christianity. It's, it's horrible. It's absolutely horrible. I'm full of fury, Lord. I'm weary of holding it in. I will pour it out on the children outside and on the assembly of the young men together. For even the husband shall be taken with the wife, the aged with him who is full of days. Now, this is sort of a different expression of full of days. That's, that's the young person who still has many days. You know, the older person has used up their days and they have few days. So, so this is the contrast. He's going to, you know, think about this. I'll pour it out on the children. This fury, I'm going to pour it out on the children. And, and people today go, oh, hey, take it easy. And, and the prophet says, no, I'm going to be firing about it with whoever I'm with. Why? Because husbands and wives and young and old and their houses shall be turned over to others, fields and wives together. For I will stretch out my hand against the inhabitants of the land, says the Lord. There is a judgment coming. There's a judgment coming for this nation. And there needs to be a fire preached that is rescuing. One that draws people away from their sin towards the Lord. Because... Verse 13, the least of them, even to the greatest of them, everyone is given to covetousness, materialism. Man, the church is full of that. And when we're spreading that disease around the world, we're taking Christianity and preaching health, wealth, and prosperity to third world nations. How stupid is that? It's absolutely absurd. What we have is the gospel. It's free. That's our message. That's our method. That's, that's all Christianity, Christianity has to offer. If you're going around preaching health, wealth, and prosperity to disease-ridden third world countries, uh, you've missed the mark. Christ is what you have to offer them. Nothing more. Stop preaching Americanism. And from the prophet, even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. That's terrible. You could recognize it, you know, in the gutter, in the bar, you know, in, in the criminal's presence, the, the wickedness that's there. But even amongst the prophet and the priest, that, that's heartbreaking. Everyone deals falsely. They have also healed the hurt of my people slightly, saying, this is an accusation the Lord is giving. One of the things he has to say against the prophet and the priest is they've healed the hurt of my people slightly, saying peace, peace, when there is no peace. You know, I, the best commentary I found on this said that it was like the grandfather who would 
blow upon the severe wound of the child just to comfort the child with the thought that he was doing something. You know, compound fracture, bone sticking out, brutal injury, and you're like, it'll be better. You've healed my people slightly. You haven't done anything to help them in their injured circumstances. You say, peace, peace. There's no peace. War is what's on the way. You know, besiegement, death, disruption is what's coming. It's really tragic to see these things this way. Think about this, you guys. Matthew chapter 11, beginning at verse 6, Jesus said, Blessed is he who is not offended because of me. As they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken in the wind? What did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft garments are in king's houses. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. John was not soft. John was not kind. John was not thoughtful in his approach, right? We have his message in Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You see that exclamation point at the end? He was telling people to turn around, right? Those Pharisees come out and he calls them a brood of vipers. He confronts people. It's not time for comfort and ease. Peace, peace. You know, you can have your best life now. No. Death and destruction are on the way. 6.15. Were they ashamed when they had committed abominations? No. They were not ashamed. They were not all ashamed, nor did they know how to blush. They didn't even have the character within their own heart to blush when they were engaged in something that was completely sinful. Right? Uh, blushing is sometimes mocked in our culture. There is an old statement long lost that blushing is the surest sign of virtue. When an individual is embarrassed by what's being said or done, and they actually blush. Uh, the culture's lost that. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. At the time, I will punish them. They shall be cast down, says the Lord. They, they've lost the shame. They've lost the virtue. They don't even blush as they engage in their sin or when they're caught in the midst of their sin. Thus says the Lord, stand in the ways and see and ask for the old paths where the good way is and walk in it. Then you will find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. We're not going back to those old, worn out Christian ways. You know, that, that's just tired. We need the new. We need the exciting. The way we should walk. The path we should find. How do you find that? Where is that? How am I going to know that I'm on the right path? What path 
should I take? What path should our church take? Psalm 119, verse 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. You want to know when you're on the proper path of the Lord? His word's going to be lined right up with it. And whatever you're doing is going to be involved in the word. It's going to be rich in the word. That rest, when we're following that light, when we're on that path, then you will find rest for your souls. Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, Jesus said, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Right? Uh, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. Jesus is the word. Learn from me and you'll find rest for your souls. The word needs to be central. The word of God needs to be the cornerstone of what we're doing. Verse 17, also I set watchmen. Now before I move on, there's like watchmen movements and watchmen uh, websites and watchmen preachers and you know watchmen books now. and everybody, Everybody's a watchman. And then when you look into what they're all about, what they are is they're the guy that just really likes to go around and nitpick everybody else. So-and-so teaches that, and <gasps> the word of God over here says in this minuscule, obscure place that you're wrong, so therefore you're a false teacher, and nobody should go to your church. You know, discerning ministries is how they're sometimes described. Everybody's got a discerning ministry. Everybody's a watchman ministry nowadays. It's interesting to me. Here, the Lord says, I will set watchmen. Men don't have to declare themselves to be watchmen. I'll set watchmen. You want to know who the watchmen are? They're usually the ones that the greater body of Christianity has rejected. You know, R.A. Tory. <laughs> Nobody's paying attention to him. Yeah. A.W. Tozier. Right? Small ministries, until they were dead and everybody else had fallen by the wayside. And then, you know, Christianity begins to pick up their books and go, wait a minute, these guys are genius. How, how did I miss this book? How did I miss these writings? You know, Mike Dynick was the first one I heard say, I don't read anybody who's still alive. Because chances are they're going to screw up before it's done. I want to read the writings of men who were right 100% of the time and exited this world in right standing. That, that helped refine who I would listen to right away. You want, you want people that are either tried and true or those that have lined themselves up with them. It's an unfortunate thing. So many people claim to be watchmen and all they are are the self-righteous critics of everyone else. Also, I set watchmen over you saying, listen to the sound of the trumpet, that warning alarm telling people to ready themselves. But they said... We will not listen. Therefore, hear, you nations, and know, O congregation, what is among them. Hear, O earth. Okay, none of my nation will listen. None of my people will listen. All right, then let creation hear what I'm saying. Hear, O earth. Behold, I will certainly bring calamity on this people. The fruit of their thoughts, because they have not heeded my words nor my law. Now, there are these positive confession teachers that say, oh, you should never think negative. See, if you, you know, think negatively, then the fruit of your thoughts will produce, you know, these terrible things. 
That's not what's being said here. He tells us what he means by that, right? Look at it. The fruit of their thoughts, because they have not heeded my words nor my law. That's why their thoughts are corrupt is because they don't listen or follow what he's saying or what he's teaching. That's why all the negativity. That's why all of the terrible things, because they aren't following in obedience, but rejected it. For what purpose to me comes frankincense from Sheba? So they're still bringing very costly gifts to the Lord. They're still bringing in tithes. They're still bringing in sacrifices to him and sweet cane from a far country. Your burnt offerings are not acceptable, nor your sacrifices sweet to me. Why? Because they're living in disobedience. It doesn't mean anything to me that you're giving me all of this sacrifice and all of this wealth and abundance because you don't obey me, the Lord is saying. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I will lay a stumble or I will lay stumbling blocks before this people. That's mostly talking about Babylon and its conquering of Israel or Judah, rather, that he's speaking of. The people are going to be saying, how could God be doing this? This can't be God. This is going to be some other thing. And the fathers and the sons together shall fall on them. The, the siege and the death and the warfare. The neighbor and his friend shall perish. It does immediately make us think of 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 7, that says, Therefore, to you who believe... He is precious, speaking of Jesus, but to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders, you know, the, the founding uh, members of Israel, the, the religious leaders, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, the stumbling over Jesus and who he is. And Christianity's doing that today, stumbling over who Jesus is. You know, it's amazing to me how many people profess to be Christians but don't understand that Jesus is God. They, they've grown to this place. They've deteriorated to this place where they think Jesus is just like all the other religious teachers. He's a good, maybe a good teacher, may, maybe a prophet. No, he's God in the flesh. Come here to save us. And, and people stumble over that. Verse 22, thus says the Lord, Behold, a people comes from the north country and a great nation will be raised from the farthest parts of the earth. Babylon is what he's speaking of. They will lay hold on bow and spear. They are cruel and have no mercy. Their voices roar like the seas and they ride on horses as men of war set in array against you, O daughter of Zion. There's a literal army coming for you is what he's saying. And they're shocked by that. We have heard the report of it. Our hands grow feeble. Anguish, number one, has taken hold of us. Pain, number two, as a woman in labor. Do not go out into the field nor walk by the way because the sword of the enemy. Fear, number three, is on every side. O daughter of my people, dress in sackcloth and roll about in ashes. Make mourning, number four, as for an only son, most bitter lamentation, for the plunder will suddenly come upon you. Anguish, pain, fear, and mourning 
are what lie ahead for them. And he's saying, you should just collapse under the weight of this. There's nothing else. You're going to rebel against me? You're going to come in and bring me all these great offerings, do all this wonderful work, do all these you know, self-sacrificing things for me, but then walk out the door and not obey me? Then what you're looking forward to is anguish, pain, fear, and mourning. Might as well go through that right now, right? Throw yourself right down. Go through the anguish. Go through the pain, the fear, and the mourning over what you need to get rid of, what you need to you know, cut loose from your life and be done with. Go through the pain now, right? Throw yourself upon the rock or it falls upon you and grinds you to powder. Choose. You're going to be humble one way or another. There's no way around that. You're either going to humble yourself or you're going to experience the humiliation which brings that humility. Might as well humble yourself in the process. Now, verse 27 begins by saying, I have set you, that's Jeremiah, as an assayer. Now, an assayer is a person who tests ores and minerals and analyzes them to determine their composition and their value. So, I've set you, Jeremiah, as an assayer and a fortress, which is a very interesting way of saying this, that I've made you a fortified assayer, meaning nobody can penetrate inside your fortress and disturb what you're doing to determine the metallurgy. It's a strange picture. There's like this God-protected forger who's going to work with metal and determine its strength and its value. So now follow the description that comes. Set you as an assayer and a fortress among my people that you may know and test their way. They are all stubborn rebels walking as slanderers. They are bronze and iron. They are all corruptors. The bellows blows fiercely. The lead is consumed by the fire. The smelter refines in vain. A smelter was the one who brought the gold out, who brought the silver out, right, in the crucible. You know, the forger might work with iron, might work with bronze, uh, but the smelter is the one who was able to say, now there's great wealth when you're done. And he's saying, oh, you've gone through all the effort. You've cooked the fire. You've gone crazy with the billows and the work, but it was all for nothing. For the wicked are not drawn off. People will call them rejected silver because the Lord has rejected them. This statement about the lead in verse 29, when they're working with the billows and they're smelting and melting the metals, they would put an ingot of lead into the metal work and it would draw all of the impurity to itself so you could then strain off the valuable metals that were there. And what he's saying is you've gone through all the prophets process, Jeremiah, and in the end, the people are so rebellious that all you've got left is this iron or this bronze. Yeah, it's metal, but it has no precious value. 
the corruption of the people. The Lord has taken his worshipers and he's just cranked the heat up underneath them. And what do you got when you're a bunch of rebels? A bunch of stubborn-hearted rebels. That's what he's saying. That's, that's a terrible condemnation. That should never be the case for those especially who confess themselves to be believers. For me, I have to look at this and just say, I can't, I cannot be this person. I cannot be this way with my, my life and my relationship with the Lord. I've got to be a soft metal like silver or gold. Something that a very low heat would cause to give way, right? We all stiffen up. We all have our ways of hardness. But it needs to be that as soon as the Lord ignites the flame of his Holy Spirit underneath us, we just give way to that heat. We just give way in admission and confession, and we allow him to burn off whatever he wants to. We allow him to sink the heavy things like lead into our lives and just pull everything else out with the process. We cannot in stubbornness harden ourselves against him and be referred to as useless silver and a vain refining. What a a terrible thing to go. Look at all you've already been through. Right, All the Lord has done in your life. It cannot be that we've come this far to hear the Lord summarize worthless. Can't be. For you and I, it cannot be that way. We must yield to him. If tonight we've heard him convict our hearts, you got to give way. you got to go home and purge out the sin. you got to cut off the things that need to go. It has to be that the Lord would have his will. We cannot resist and experience this wastefulness in our lives. Amen? Amen. Well, we'll pick up with seven next week. Why don't we stand and we'll pray. Father, again, we thank you for your love and your work in our lives. We thank you for the clarity of your word, and we pray that you would help us to be men and women that yielded to you. You're so good to us. I thank you for the fire of Jeremiah, his intensity. Lord, help me to yield. Help my brothers and sisters to yield and to just melt away and to receive your instruction. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.